Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is the sixth episode of a 20 episode series all about Antarctica. So today's episode features Dr. Cassandra Brooks. She's a professor at CU Boulder and has a background full of Antarctica, marine science, policy, and marine protections. She studied deep sea toothfishes in the Southern Ocean, was an integral part of the Last Ocean Campaign, is science faculty for the Homeward Bound program that I'm a member of, and also is part of the CAMLAR program for Antarctica Protections. And I could explain all of that, but Cassandra and I talk about all of this, so just enjoy and happy Antarctica Day, which is today, December 1st. So I am Cassandra Brooks. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm also a mother of two young, beautiful children. Um, and uh, Antarctica has been a part of our life for a really long time. Um, and I'd just say since the first time I went uh, about 15 years ago, I just so fell in love with the place. No place that ever made me feel so alive and so humbled. Um, and uh, and it, it's really brought me to where I am today. I met my husband who's a conservation photographer and filmmaker because he was working on a large effort to protect uh, a specific place in Antarctica called the, the Ross Sea, Antarctica. And we, he recruited me to work on this project with him called The Last Ocean. And I'd been studying fish in Antarctica, but I hadn't really worked in media or ad, ad, advocacy. And he pulled me into that. And it became this lifelong journey of, uh, of uh, working on this amazing project to, to protect Antarctica. And he convinced me to work on the project, to, uh, to move to Boulder, Colorado, where he was from, to marry him, to have his children. <laughs> and, uh, and here we are still on this journey. We've named our children after Antarctic animals. We've, and we've actually like we both now engage in the policy making around Antarctica and have actually brought uh, the children and his in-laws and uh, down to these meetings. And so it's, um, I feel like Antarctica is very much uh, a core part of, of our life now. <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems like a, a very big part. How did you end up going to Antarctica the first time? Because it seems like some people end up going just like totally on accident almost. And some people had a plan and it took like 10 years to finally get there, but so I'm always yeah. curious. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and everybody has a story, I think, about how they first got to Antarctica. Uh, in my case, I grew up in rural New Hampshire in the United States. Uh, and it, oh my gosh, Antarctica was not on my radar. Like it was a big deal to go one town over, let alone to a different state. And uh, and uh, I, I just ended up um, really falling in love with the ocean and marine science. And at one point uh, decided to go back to school for a master's in marine science after being out for a few years and knew California was a great place to do that. When you grow up in New England too, yeah, I don't know, at least in my head, this idea that like go West, go to California, it's much cooler than New Hampshire. Uh, and it is, as it turns out. Um, but yeah, and I wanted to study deep sea fish. I love deep sea fish. I had worked as a fisheries observer at that point in New England as well, and kind of knew these tragic stories of the disappearance of cod and other big fish. And so I got out to California and ended up going to Moss Landing Marine Labs, which is through California State University. And literally, literally, like as I was searching for a project on deep sea fish, fell into a funded project studying the life history of Antarctic and Patagonian toothfishes, uh, which you would know as Chilean sea bass. That's what they're sold as. I guess toothfish isn't a attractive enough name. Um, but yeah, I literally fell into this project studying these deep sea Antarctic fish. The reason for the project was that there was a growing commercial fishery for these uh, toothfishes and we didn't have very good life history information. And so I got to really study how old do they get and um, when do they spawn and where do they live? And some of these like really basic uh, fundamental stuff. 
And, uh, but like some students, like I didn't actually have to go to Antarctica. I arrived with this project and had all the samples that I needed. Like they, they had been collected by fisheries observers, ironically, um, in Antarctica, but I felt really frustrated with that and thought, gosh, if I'm studying this fish, I really want to understand the environment it's from. And I really need to go to Antarctica. And so through really, uh, asking around other scientists at my lab who were going, I was able to uh, to get a position as a research assistant during that time as my master's uh, with a uh, with a group at NOAA who who actually does krill surveys and so I managed to get on a krill survey boat uh, in a 2005 2006 season and uh, and then they were doing uh, two krill surveys and a, and a fish survey and so I managed to stay on for the two krill surveys and then I was like but I got to stay on for the fish but they didn't actually have a spot for me and I I kind of just stayed on the ship. <laughs> Like, I was like, I'm not going guys. I'm not going. And, uh, I managed to stay on that ship for a, for a third leg. And, uh, and that was, that was it, I guess, like after I, after I had that experience of going there, it's so, like I said, changed my life and, and I had this amazing project. And so, um, so I was studying the life history of this fish for, for, I guess, uh, four or five, four year masters. It happens. It's okay. Um, and, uh, and ended up making connections to other Antarctic scientists when I was down there, which led to more opportunities to, to go down and study, which I think can happen too. Like once you go down as a scientist and show that you can sort of handle the extreme conditions as well as, um, you know, when you're down in Antarctica, it's expensive to get down there for science and operations go on 24 hours a day. And so once you show that you can work hard and, and endure, then you're often invited back, which is great. Yeah, that's cool. Cause yeah, it seems like what you just said, you get in once and then you make connections because it's a small group of people, really. It's yeah. not a big field. It's a, community, um, it's a community of scientists that I think, yeah, you get to know each other. It's really interesting. And you, if you spend time on a ship together, like you're kind oh, of yeah. bonded for life, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I feel the same way just about people I've done field work with. And it's, you know, exactly. much smaller. I would say they are boats, not ships right. <laughs> that we work on. Uh, I feel like having the samples and stuff already and not have going would have felt very like disconnected. Um, totally. Like it would have just been like, oh, these are just numbers in a spreadsheet or whatever. That's how I would have felt. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think uh, for me as a sort of being trained as a biologist and ecologist, it's all about that intimate experience with, with what you're studying. And, and that's exactly how I felt. It's like, how do I actually understand this extreme animal and its life history if I don't know, experience the environment that it's from? And, and I think there's some real truth to that. And it's not to discredit scientists who who don't do field work or who, who number crunch. I think there's real value for that too, but I also think there's real value with having that intimate experience with a place. Yeah. I think that's just not my personality type. Cause like I'm a field scientist and I like to have been there and experienced it and yes. then look at my data later and be yes. like, well, I remember that day. <laughs> exactly. Know? Exactly. Every data point has a story, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some days I'm like, I don't remember this day. And some days I'm like that day. Yeah. I remember that day. <laughs> okay. So I have a potentially dumb question. I hear krill all the time and I know what krill is, but what I don't know is like, is that just one species or are there like a bunch of species that make up Antarctic krill? Yeah, great question. So krill, krill are all over the world, obviously, like that's the generic term for this. Uh, uh, someone might call it a small shrimp-like crustacean, but they are a small crustacean. They're not a shrimp though, uh, but they, they feed so many things in the world. And in Antarctica, there are uh, four species of krill and Euphasia is the genus, but the one that most people are referring to is Euphasia superba, which is the, the biggest of all the krill species. It can grow to be five to six centimeters, like really big for a krill, almost like a, 
functions more as a small pelagic fish than a than a um, than a normal krill would. And they are so abundant; they are considered potentially to be the most abundant by biomass of all animals on Earth. Uh, 300 to 500 million tons in the Southern Ocean. Wow. Uh, yes. Yeah. So hugely abundant animal. And so you can imagine they feed everything. The, the Southern Ocean food web really depends on krill, everything from, from the massive whales uh, coming from all over the Southern Hemisphere to feed on them to, um, you know, fish and seals and penguins. So many things feed on krill. So they really are a core part of the, of the Southern Ocean food chain. Uh, I've been wondering that and I had no luck on Google. So I was like, yeah, I'll ask. <laughs> so, totally. And krill, yeah. I mean, krill are, are also increasingly uh, subject to commercial fishing. So you mm -hmm. may have heard about that too, where they're um, very large fisheries, increasingly large every year um, in recent years for this, this funny little animal that everything feeds on. And the funny thing about uh, this species of krill, um, they're called, their common name is just Antarctic krill, uh, is that they are harvested largely for omega-3 pills and mm -hmm. for fish meal, but not really human consumption. And part of that is that they have these toxic levels of uh, fluorine in their carapace. And so when they're, when they're caught, they start to break down, right? Cause they're dead. Um, and they leach out uh, this fluorine into their, into their flesh. And so actually people, they're not very good for, for human consumption, um, but they are a lot used for omega-3 pills and fish meal. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> very weird also. It's very weird. And I guess from a, a from a values perspective, there's there's always these questions of sustainability. Like, is this fishery sustainable? Um, and I would say, gosh, you're you're competing with whales and seals and penguins and fish. From their perspective, it's like, what is sustainable, right? <laughs> like, you're competing with these with all these things. Um, and from a values perspective, I guess now that I've been down there and experienced it, it just it seems ludicrous to me to spend so much. Uh, energy and time, gas, fuel, you name it, to, to literally go to the bottom of the earth, to go to the most remote corners of the earth, to pull out animals that we're not even eating. Like it, you're not necessarily uh, enhancing food security, right? By, by fishing for krill and toothfish, the other main fishery, which is like I said, sold as Chilean sea bass is a very high market fish. It's like very, very expensive. And so again, the, the argument of, uh, we need to go to the Southern ocean to feed people. I don't, I don't think stands. Um, but again, it's, that's, that's my values, um, saying that, that it, it seems it's such an extreme place. It's a place where humans didn't evolve. So, so it's a system that evolved without human pressure. Right. And now mm -hmm. here we are coming in, um, and fishing this last place. That's incredibly threatened by climate change, incredibly so. And so I would, you know, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel the same way. It's a long way to go for something for omega-3 pills. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have one more question and then I wanna talk about um, marine protected areas and the last ocean because that's very intriguing to me. But my question is, what even is a Chilean sea bass? Like, is that even a thing or is this just like a name someone made up that was like a marketing tactic? It was a name that a dude made up um, when he found the fish in, in Chilean markets um, because the, so the, the fish, the toothfishes, the Antarctic toothfish is its own species. And then the Patagonian toothfish is a different species, but they're both Disosticus is the genus name. Um, and the Antarctic one, uh, Disosticus mossinii, is, is further south and it actually has antifreeze in its blood. It's what? such a cool fish. Yeah, yeah, because it's the waters it's in uh -huh. is actually below the point of freezing and the, the water doesn't freeze because it's salty, but their blood would. And so they actually have to have antifreeze proteins that bind ice crystals in their blood. So fascinating fish. The one for the north, Disosticus elegonoides, uh, 
the Patagonia toothfish is found actually off of Chile and Argentina and, and maybe even further north, uh, actually. Uh, but, uh, but that's where we first emerged sort of in, in some of these obscure markets. Um, in, in uh, Chile, Chile, but it was like, it was like this big ugly fish found from the deep and they sold it as fish sticks or whatever. And then um, remarketed it as Chilean sea bass. Cause toothfish just sounds gross. Like tooth, ugh, like big, big gross teeth. Um, and, and what they found once they marketed it as Chilean sea bass, it's not a sea bass. It's definitely, definitely not even close to sea bass when they remarketed it and got it into restaurants. Actually uh, it's a very popular fish because of its crazy adaptations. So one of the crazy things about toothfish, both species is that they don't have a swim bladder and most fish actually have like an air pouch in their, um, basically in their bodies that they would use to control their buoyancy, how they would move up and down the water column. Most fish have this. Toothfishes don't, they, they just don't. And so they control buoyancy uh, through, through other ways. They have a lot of um, air pockets in their skeleton. And then they also have tons of fat cells. And they literally, I've been told by uh, some scientists who work more on their cellular matter that every muscle cell is surrounded by fat. And so they're an incredibly rich fatty, it makes them buoyant, makes them buoyant in the water, um, but, uh, but incredibly rich fatty fish. And so chefs just loved it, right? They were like this, this rich buttery thing. And so once it was rebranded as Chilean sea bass, it definitely became a very popular high-end fish. And so this really obscure deep sea fish that had been studied for so long, for decades by scientists, because it was a weird, obscure, fascinating fish that had these crazy uh, antifreeze proteins and, and weird buoyancy uh, things going on. It had been studied and loved by these scientists for a long time, but never, never marketed. And one thing to know too about toothfish is that they are the top fish predator in the Southern Ocean. There are no sharks in proper Antarctica. And a lot of the fish are, are much smaller, like they're small benthic fish that live on the bottom. Um, and then you have these toothfish, which are just dramatically larger, um, top predatory fish in that system, and also a key prey species for um, some seals and whales. And so, so they're a really important uh, part of the system that are, that are now being sold as something that they're not at all. <laughs> Chilean sea bass. <laughs> not yeah, real. I was curious because it seemed like, a, you know, some sort of like marketing tactic, but then it got okay. me thinking about here we have an invasive uh, animal called the nutria is from South America and the nutria. <laughs> they did. Yeah. But they are in California as well. Uh, I think not as horribly as here, but, um, there was like a tactic to sort of like try to rename it and remarket it. It did not work. <laughs> so that was just so that people would actually eat it was that the idea yeah yeah they're totally edible they're vegetarians like the meat's really lean uh <laughs> people are probably super large rodent that is yeah edible. yeah totally i mean why not like it, and there's so like, many of them <laughs> yeah they weigh like 20 pounds they're super destructive to wetlands like they're easy to hunt they're dumb <laughs> like they're not native <laughs> you know yeah uh but people just see a giant rat and want nothing to do with it but yeah totally. they're vegetarians and good in a gumbo <laughs> so, have you ever eaten them yeah yeah i have there you go so you can speak to that <laughs> someone did make uh dog treats has like a company making dog treats out of it uh i haven't been able to get my hands on them because they sell out so quickly but okay. i feel like my dog might like that um totally any rate okay so uh t can you tell me about the last ocean like i know it's a documentary but it also was like a uh, organization as well right yeah, totally. So, so kind of, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, conservation photographer, John Weller, who's now my husband, uh, is a Boulder based, uh, yeah, was a Boulder based conservation photographer who had uh, really started using media to, 
to try to drive conservation outcomes and uh, and had just finished an amazing project here in the Great Sand Dunes uh, of Colorado and was sort of actually scouting around for his next big project when a high school friend dropped an obscure policy paper into his hands that was describing the Ross Sea Antarctica as the last intact marine ecosystem left in the world. And John as a Colorado kid was like, wait, the oceans are that damaged that there's one place left? Like, this is crazy. Um, and uh, and he actually flew out to meet the scientist, David Ainley, who wrote this obscure, it was a policy paper. It wasn't even like a peer reviewed publication. And he flew out to meet with him and they had this amazing discussion about the Ross Sea and, and this scientist, David Ainley had been working there for decades. And he saw the toothfish fishing industry coming in and, and he, from his perspective was like, not on my watch. I grew up in New England. I saw the decline of cod. I live in California. I've seen the destruction of the fisheries here. I am not, I go to Antarctica to study an intact system to understand how a healthy marine system is meant to function and how important that is under climate change. And so he felt that on his watch, he didn't want to see the system go down. So, so David agreed to galvanize the scientists and John would, would do the media and be the public facing piece. And they coined it as the last ocean to really get in people's heads. Like mm -hmm. here's this last intact place in the Ross Sea, Antarctica. Yeah. And then this, uh, so I only know bits and pieces from what I heard you talk about like a month or two ago, but I know you do work, um, I don't know how to describe it. Some policy work with the Kamlar, I think I said that right. And oh, if God. I'm not, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, didn't the Ross Sea Marine Protection Area just be, come into existence like in the last two, three years? Yeah, I'll tell you about that. So we, we started, um, I started, I guess, studying toothfish in 2004. John actually had started this last ocean project at the same time. He found me, I guess, around um, 2009 and literally called me up and uh, there's, there's very few people who study toothfish, as you can imagine, uh, especially in the United States. And he literally called me up and said, we need to talk about toothfish um, and was making a case to me about this protecting the Ross Sea. Now, by then, I had studied the toothfish. I'd seen it was like a deep sea, slow growing, like the, the research I did just confirmed it's a slow growing fish. It's very vulnerable to overfishing. And I had already been at my university, uh, when I was finishing up my master's, like defending my master's thesis and saying, we need a protected area mm -hmm. in the Ross Sea and being scoffed at because, oh, it's an international space. Cassandra, stop being emotional, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, stop, stop being emotive, you're a scientist. Um, and, uh, and so when John called me, I mean, I was like, yes, absolutely, let's protect this place. And so he pulled me on as, uh, and I had been getting into media by then too, especially when I'd go to Antarctica, I'd always like write blogs and try to do media mm -hmm. from the ships. And so he pulled me into this project and, and yeah, we spent the next 10 years working together on this and, uh, and it was super intense. And we got to see the whole process of governments like the U S and New Zealand champion a proposal and bring it to Camelar and Camelar is the commission for the conservation of Antarctic marine living resources. So it's a multinational group that actually governs the Southern ocean. They make decisions on unanimous consensus. So as you can imagine, so the U S and New Zealand are like, all right, we felt all this pressure. Um, here's a proposal for a marine protected area in the Ross sea. Um, and at the same time, like I said, David was galvanizing with scientists. He was involved in the proposal. Um, John and us at the last ocean, we made a documentary. We made a book. Uh, we we're doing tons of public talks, website, really lots of public facing stuff, trying to get, bring the public to the, the Ross Sea, right? Because you can't, you can't physically do that, but to do that through this uh, visual emotional experience. And, uh, and yeah, it took, uh, it, 2012 was the first year the proposal came to Camelar. It was negotiated every year, super painful. At this time, so I, for me personally, right? So I'm like, okay, I've done the science 
and I've done the, the public facing advocacy stuff, but I realized we didn't really know how to target. Like who are we targeting in this international group? And I realized for me, like I didn't know the policy process. And so it motivated me to go back to school and get my PhD focused on the policy elements of uh, protecting Antarctica and to actually get a seat in the room at Kamlar, not negotiating, but in the back of the room <laughs> observing and, and studying it and understanding it. So, so amazingly, I got to actually study this whole process um, of, of governments negotiating. And it was 2016, oh my gosh, after years and years of governments negotiating, scientists working, us doing the public facing media stuff, um, you know, working at that policy interface between the science, uh, science public and the policy and all that. And uh, finally in 2016, and John was in the room, I was in the room, they finally came to consensus and, and agreed to protect the Ross Sea October 28, 2016. And it was one of those amazing moments of both our life, because I think we'd worked on it so long that at that point, like if it wasn't going to happen, I almost think maybe it would have like broken us a little bit, you know, and <laughs> Um, and for John too, like his, his media had become the face of, of this whole campaign. And, and, uh, and it, it was like amazing because a lot of the tension was between the, between us and Russia. Um, Russia was one of the biggest opponents, us being one of the main opponents. And it, it was so tense in the room at times. Um, and I was doing research interviews and people were like, Oh, it feels like a cold war feel in this room. at Kamlar. like, what's going on? This is an MPA. Like, but it is, it's like a very political space. And so when we got agreement on it, when, when like literally in the room, when the chair announced we have consensus, we're adopting a Ross Sea Marine Protected Area, the room exploded in applause and countries were hugging and everybody was cheering. We're in the back of the room crying. You know, some of the scientists were crying. They'd worked so hard on this thing. And, and it was one of those things that was clearly like a diplomatic and political um, unifying piece. So like, here's this gift to the gift to future generations, gift, gift of protecting the environment but then we had this amazing like diplomatic moment that I think was was even more profound for me like seeing countries come together um, in a difficult time to to do this and it did it came into force in uh, 2017 so it's now been in place for three years oh, yeah that's such a huge success <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's uh it was such an amazing thing to be a part of and it was such it became such a bigger thing I mean uh John my husband and Peter Young who's the filmmaker based out of New Zealand who uh produced the documentary I mean they both are are media artists working out of their garages you know I mean I, I can't even explain to you the amount of blood sweat and tears that literally went into this thing I mean it was is such a um such a crazy epic journey but to know that that you know, we were part of this huge thing uh, is, is something that I think we're both really, really proud of, you know? And, and, and if it hadn't happened in 2016, I think we know it wouldn't, certainly wouldn't have happened in the four years after. And, uh, and we're working towards really what Kamala are committed to was a whole network of Southern Ocean Marine Protected Areas. And so, you know, the Ross Sea is a, is a huge one. Um, it's more than 2 million kilometers squared. So it wow. is huge. Um, but we are actively working towards protecting um, an entire network. So the East Antarctic has a proposal, the Weddell Sea, and the Antarctic Peninsula, which is where we have a lot of the climate change and fishing threats. Um, so we're really pushing to have this whole system in place to really protect uh, the Southern Ocean more adequately. So yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So that kind of gets to what my next question was, was going to be like, well, what's next? And it sounds like there's like a series of them that are stages yeah. of progress <laughs> yeah I mean I guess that points to like so how do you do you know how do you do protection and I think you can't do it piecemeal and have it be effective the southern ocean is a is a whole ecosystem and of course mm -hmm. there's many ecosystems within that but but the southern ocean itself uh 
is a is a complex system. And there's been a lot of research done on mapping out like where are the vulnerable areas? How do we have a representative system that actually covers all the different life in the Southern Ocean? So we have a lot of science that actually can support this process. And like I said, there's multiple proposals on the table right now um, under negotiation. It really comes down to political will. Um, so much science has been done, but I think that's, it is really difficult. We're living in a, we're living in a strained time, I guess. Um, in general, <laughs> in terms yeah. of international diplomacy. And obviously things are changing a lot in the US. So maybe that gives us a window as Americans to do more than we've been able to do in the last few years uh, around mm -hmm. conservation and climate change. Um, but you know, there's a lot of big players in the room. The EU is a very powerful force pushing for protection really hard. Um, France is championing some of the, um, one of the proposals as well as Australia and Germany and Norway. So we have a lot of powerful countries uh, pushing for this. Um, and I think it really just does come down to political will. Antarctica is hard. It's a, it's a, uh, takes unanimous consensus, right? So not just majority agreeing to it. So all you need is one country to not agree to something and then it can't go through. And that's not just around protected areas in recent years, but even around climate change initiatives, some things that are so obvious to do, like we know Antarctica is one of the fastest melting places, most, most vulnerable, um, and there's resistance among some countries to, to uh, even try to incorporate climate change more into science and into management decisions. And um, so that for me personally is incredibly frustrating to see because what more evidence do you need? Like it's all right. there, right? We don't need more science. We need policy action now, like at this point, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and they only meet once a year. So it's, it's like, and we just met virtually uh, a couple weeks ago and it was super painful and the time zones were awful and people like it was just you can't do zoom diplomacy like that just doesn't work and um and it was it's like okay now we have to wait a whole other year right to to make policy decisions so I think that part's hard for me too and like to, I'm trained as like a scientist so like I I think uh sometimes the policy process still to me is is uh like sometimes I still feel naive to it, right? Where I'm like, oh, can't this work? And it's like, well, no, no, Cassandra, that can't work because it takes, it takes longer. And even with the Rossi, right, it took, it took so long um, and it was super rewarding, but, but it's, I have to keep in mind like, okay, we move towards decision-making year by year and it's a slow process, but anything worth doing, right? Like does take a long time and like, you, you know, you have to do it right. And, and so I think, I hope we're still making progress. And again, I think we'll see 2020 was supposed to be a really big year, you know, for oceans and conservation. And of course, we've all been sidetracked by the pandemic and, and, uh, and it's, it's really hard. I think it's really hard to do the work that we're used to doing right now. So, yeah, yeah. So thinking about policy, like my background also as a scientist, and I'm just like, well, we have the data, just go do it. Just do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. right. So that would be really frustrating because I totally could see your perspective there. Yeah. I think it's really frustrating. Um, and I, and I think, I think there's two parts of the science that's frustrating. One is that like, yeah, we have so much good information. And then in, 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 in the Antarctic, and this is probably the case in most places, science uh -huh. is often used as a, well, we don't have enough science, you know? And it's like, well, you'll never have like enough. What is enough? Like right. what is, what is sufficient to, to make decisions? Like, and, and that's just the thing is, is the, th I feel like some of these thresholds for climate change are happening so much faster than people thought. Um, the fires here where I live in Colorado were so insane this fall, like way late mm -hmm. into the season, California, obviously Australia was experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And I think all these things are happening so quickly. And um, this last time when I was in Antarctica with Homeward Bound, uh, which was such a profound 
uh, profound opportunity to be able to go as part of a woman's uh, leadership initiative and be with all these women leaders. But for me personally, I had a really sad moment because um, I hadn't been back to the Antarctic Peninsula um, in, a, in a long time. I can't remember, maybe it had been I don't know, like eight years or something. Like I hadn't been back to that part of Antarctica. And, uh, and I remember seeing Adelie penguins, which is what I named my daughter after actually. And she kept saying, mom, send me a picture of an Adelie from your trip. And we couldn't find them. Like they just weren't around. And I'm, and then I was like, am I remembering wrong? Like, and I'm looking back through all these books and I'm like, no, they, they had a presence here. And Adelis are one of the ones that they depend on cold water. And, and some of the places we went to that used to be Adelie nests had been taken over by uh, gentoos and other species. Mm -hmm. And, and so just to, again, see, see in this very short period of time, like, oh my gosh, like, yes, I'm talking to you about an anecdotal change, but, but again, that there's, there's evidence to support, like certain penguin populations are just tanking right now. Um, and again, to have it be my own, <laughs> it's like my daughter's namesake, like in her lifetime, she's, she's going to see this crazy shift. And so, um, so I, I do feel like the science is clear uh, and not just in Antarctica, but in the world that we just, we just have to you know, my hope, though, is that, you know, what have we seen in the past that crisis can lead to breakthroughs and, mm -hmm. and uh, what has COVID taught us, if anything, that we can act quickly, like we can, we can change things when we have to. And I hope we come out of this with a stronger awareness of our connection to the environment and the risks of um, behaving in the ways that we were, you know, as a global community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I hope that we have like a dedication to keeping up the good change. And we don't just yeah. like, get lazy as a group of people. <laughs> Me too. But I do think we're all feeling it so much more viscerally. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, especially through through things like fire um, mm -hmm. and through just other extreme events that are happening. I mean, even there's evidence, right, that the pandemic itself is related to our encroachment upon biodiversity, mm -hmm. our treatment of animals, you know, and, um, and, and the hope, I guess my I feel like this must be a wake up call. This has to be a wake up call. The youth are demanding change, which is so awesome and inspiring to be to be living through, right? And mm -hmm. and I feel like we have to listen to them. And um, and yeah, I mean, I'm just hopeful that 2020 is this year that everybody's traumatized from, and <laughs> and will be this crazy wake up call, you know? Yeah, uh, we've had. I've lost count how many hurricanes we've had this year. I think it's five. Right. Like right. make landfall in Louisiana, which is a record, not a good one. It's a bad one. Totally. Um, and then we've we ran out of letters, and now we're like on Ada, like right. out of the Greek alphabet, and we right. read Ada and something, and I I don't keep making track of it. And now we have, and it's gonna make landfall in the U.S. like on Sunday. Like, no kidding! Wow. Let's the this storm has like done crazy things, like, and they're going all over the place, and they're getting stronger so quickly, like. For example, Hurricane Laura in August, like it was originally forecast to be a category one when it made landfall. And then within like in at like 48 hours to landfall. And then it was like almost a category five. Wow. Like at landfall. Like it just like Ugh. blew up because it was just everything, the water was so hot and everything and all yeah. these things. You know, as an example here, because it really get wildfires so much. But like exactly. the point the point of the rambling, I guess, is like we tend to think that climate change is like something that's going to happen to us in the future, but it's like already happening. No, it's here. It's here. And I guess it's that everyone keeps saying, oh, this is unprecedented. This is unprecedented. It's like the, the fear, the, the only fear I guess I do have is, you know, if you're familiar with the idea of shifting baselines that you actually can become normalized to this where you're mm -hmm. like, oh, fire is just you know, part of our life. My poor three-year-old Orion, you know, is constantly talking about, mom, there's an air quality alert. Mom, we can't go outside. There's an air quality alert. I'm like, this is now coronavirus air quality, you know, mm -hmm. alerts. All these things are now part of his three-year-old 
rhetoric and world and um and and my hope is that again that's part of the wake up but i i do have that like well what if we just sort of treat this as our new normal and somehow um normalize it and like i hope i hope that's not it and i have to believe that again we're we're going to demand a different future coming out of this but yeah something to um for all of us i think to keep in mind like what's what's normal you know Right. I think I personally got used to the idea of like, oh, there was two hurricanes in one week and now there seems to be a hurricane every couple of weeks. Like this isn't normal, but I've just gotten maybe like numb to it. Just like, okay, of course this is going to happen now this year. Right. Right. And maybe Uh, that's the, that's the challenge we all have is to like, Uh, is to fight, fight that feeling of, of this is the new normal and to, um, and to again, just, you know, demand, demand a different future going forward. So I have a, policy logistical question i guess so the series of marine protected areas do they are they getting put forward as individual things for people to vote yes or no on or is it like one one thing i guess yeah good question the way it works in the antarctic and this is land and ocean is that it takes specific countries to put the energy Mm -hmm. into championing it um to pulling together the science to you know um to putting together the proposal itself. So, so yeah, there's three different proposals on the table and they are being led by um, different sets of countries. Mm-hmm. However, most recently um, there's been a bit more collaboration between uh, two of the proposals so that they have similar countries behind them, mm-hmm. but it isn't, uh, they don't all kind of come together. They get looked at differently. I think that's one of the hard things is that uh, countries have maybe different approaches even to their science and their planning. And mm-hmm. um, while I would say all those approaches are valid, it's maybe sometimes confusing from a policy perspective. You're like, why did they use Markshan, which is one software, <laughs> but they use this other software and you're like, no, they're all fine. <laughs> like, it's all good. Yeah. But, but I think that can be um, confusing. And I think one of the things that's hard to in Antarctica is we're talking about these massive areas. I mean, really mm-hmm. huge huge areas and um, and you can't just have an MPA, you need to do research and monitoring and enforcement and management. And I think that's something we're still sorting out how to do in the Ross Sea, for example, which mm-hmm. is such a huge area, like how to do that. And it seems that we're doing it, but um, I think if we had a, I don't know, like how, it's an international space. How do you have like a dedicated staff and team? You know what I mean? Like in the United States, we would actually have people paid to, to we have people paid to manage the MPAs that we have in the United States. and with it being an international space, even that responsibility falls upon national governments to do. Like it's not as if CAMLAR as a body has the capacity to do uh, management of these large things. So that's part of it too. But yeah, there's separate, there's separate protected area proposals that, that come forward in different ways at different times. Um, but, you know, from, from the, from a sort of, I guess, science perspective and even policy perspective, I, I see it as a whole network, right? Like it's a whole system of protected areas that hopefully would would work uh, together in a unified way. But um, we'll, see, we'll see where we get to in 2021. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I hadn't thought about like how you would enforce and monitor and manage that. In Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that, even though like I should have because my own work is monitoring, but... Uh. I, you know, they live a couple hours from there. Right, not- right. And it's still hard, right? Like it's still yeah. a challenge to do locally. So yeah, I think, it, you know, it's something that uh, a lot of governments do research in these areas. Uh, you know, like in the Rossi, there's a lot of governments doing uh, research right there. And some of it is focused on the marine protected area. With enforcement, um, you know, especially during the science season, which is uh, the height of the science season is the summer and that's the height of the fishing season uh, for mm-hmm. toothfish too. And so uh, there's a lot of planes going overhead and ships on the water. And so, um, so far it seems that there hasn't been illegal fishing in the protected area. 
um, which is good. It's what you, that's what you want. Uh, and there, there's a lot of potential, I think, with some of the satellite work, um, not just for enforcement, but for research and monitoring, for tracking mammals and penguins and things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of innovation going on. And maybe COVID will force even more, right? Because we don't have as many scientists going. And, uh, and frankly, as much as I love going, and I think it's important for scientists to go to Antarctica, I think if we're serious about climate change, we, and, and protecting the Antarctic environment, we might also get serious about how do we more efficiently do our research so that we're not all flying all over the place and, um, you know, and, and using the tools and innovations that we actually have, you know, available to us, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had an interview yesterday with this uh, college student that I'm mentoring, and she asked me, uh, what is one of the biggest changes in my career, career field over the last like 10 years since I got out of grad school? And, I was, and my answer was the technology because like we had, you know, GPSs that would get you within like five or eight meters of where you wanted to go. And then you had to search around if you're looking for something specific. But now we have like, you know, sub meter accurate GPS. That's, you know, yes. not unfathomably expensive anymore. Yes. We have super like, I don't know how to say it, like super fine satellite imagery. Like it's really yeah. good resolution. We have all this like, drone capabilities so we can right. go places but not have to necessarily physically go there right like all of this stuff is just amazing and it's just still so new that I think we're going to find all kinds of cool ways to use it I think you're exactly right and I think we have to challenge ourselves to do that right to not um just be like oh no but it, but again I mean we we're talking about like the intimate experience of going in the field and, and I do yeah. think that that is important too but um but yeah like why not why not use these amazing innovations that uh, the people are developing and apply them in new ways. It's a really mm -hmm. exciting time for that. Yeah, I think there's some things you definitely still need to do in person. Like if you need samples, someone still has to go get them, right? But if you're trying to map something or I, I talked to somebody who had found penguin colonies using satellite imagery. Yep. I was just like, yeah, you don't need to go like trudge around looking for penguin. If you're just trying to there find colonies are. and map them, you <laughs> exactly. know? And exactly. presumably you could get like kind of a good count if your imagery is good enough, you know, ballpark yeah. anyway. That's right. Um, it's just so astounding to me. Yeah, it's really, it's really exciting for that stuff. And I do, I, I love being a biologist, but sometimes I do feel like you're often just poking and prodding um, animals instead of just kind of leaving them be. So <laughs> it's a great, great technology too to stop, stop uh, harassing the animals, you know? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I spend most of my time molesting plants, but you know, <laughs> just like disturbing them as I flail through here or fall in a hole or whatever. And but totally. they're pretty resilient at least around here. Yes, that's so. right. That's right. Yeah. What I know we don't have a ton of more time, but what else do you want to talk about? Like, I feel like there's probably loads of things you might be want to share that I don't know what to ask about. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I, I think just maybe reflecting on, uh, my Antarctic journey, because I know you want to talk about that too. And, um, like this, these efforts to, to work, to protect this place that I love, um, I will reflect back on uh, my experience with Homeward Bound and getting to go in this new capacity. Uh, and what a, what a strange experience it was for me in a way because I'd never not been down as a scientist. And here I was in Antarctica with a bunch of women scientists, but we weren't doing science. <laughs> I was like, wait, why are we doing science? Um, but, it, but it was such a profound moment because women, uh, gosh, and I was just lecturing about this this morning in my class, like women used to not be allowed to go to Antarctica. Like seriously, like it was, considered that they would like tempt the men or this and that, or they weren't strong enough. I mean, on and on, like so insane that, that women just weren't even allowed in that space. 
Um, and even in the United States, it wasn't until like the late seventies that the first mm -hmm. woman scientist was supported to go. And so for me, going down um, last year with this largest expedition of women ever to go to Antarctica was such a profound experience to say, we're here, like we are here, we are visible, we're here together. Mm -hmm. And and I loved that because people are always like, well, why do you have to go all the way to Antarctica? And, you know, and we are talking about climate change and I'd say on, on some ways, uh, you know, the, the program is, is temporary and won't go on forever. And maybe we, we shouldn't all go to Antarctica uh, all the time, you know? Um, but to say that that experience of bringing all the women there, it did feel to me like this moment of gathering women leaders in science from all over the world, bringing them together at the bottom of the world to elevate, right? To elevate mm -hmm. the entire world. And, and, and that's really how it felt to me, the experience of, of being with all these women leaders. And they left with this you know, real sense of climate change, real sense of urgency to go home mm -hmm. and take action and, and including around Antarctic issues where, where now there's a community of the Homer Bound alumni women that are leading on this initiative called Antarctica Now mm -hmm. um, and trying to push for, for a protected area in the peninsula in particular, which is where we went, where, they, where climate change really is um, having such an impact in fishing as, as well as I, as I talked about. Um, and just to say like what, a, what an honor it is to be Part of this community and what an honor it is to be a woman scientist in this time you know and to be mm -hmm. uh to be able to to find our voices and to find our leadership and and even just the model of leadership of of leading together and and that's what i mean i love that idea of all of us gathering there and elevating um elevating the world through through being together down there so um so i i sincerely hope <laughs> you got your experience and in, in uh in 2021 because it is a um, it is a, a place that I think changes, changes people, uh, changes their life, you know, after they experience it. Uh, I will say of all the bunch of people I've talked to, nobody has said it didn't change them. So <laughs> I think that that's probably fairly universal as I would expect it to be, because that's how I expect it to be for me. Yeah, absolutely. I do think there's very few places in the world that, um, that can change you in that way. And, and again, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the like being, I think it's a mix of everything, like experiencing the environment so viscerally, like Antarctica is, is the most extreme place on earth, right? In terms of cold and wind and, and, and the water being uh, again, freezing as well. It's just such an extreme place and a place where, um, where, yeah, even the wildlife isn't afraid of you because they haven't, they haven't evolved around, you know, with having uh, humans threatening them, <laughs> at least not in the way that like here we do in North America. Um, but yeah, just to have it, it feel that way. Um, it's such a, such a profoundly beautiful place. And, and it's a global commons, right? I think that's mm -hmm. actually something for all of us to keep in mind that, that it's all of our responsibility to, to protect it, not just the, what, the waters around it, but Antarctica as a whole as this place of, of peace and science and and as a natural reserve. So, um, so what an opportunity to, yeah, be able to go there and experience that and know that you're part of it, you know? Yeah. I can't wait for my turn, whatever that may be. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is why it was so cool that our cohort is like, well, if we can't go this year, we'll just do this big online thing in lieu of it. So at least we're doing something together during these three weeks. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I think that that's really cool. And, and perhaps your cohort will be the most bonded, right? Because you've been through this sort of more traumatic. <laughs> yeah. It's over it all. been a very weird year in all the ways. And then, yeah, now our, our year is now two years. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, it's definitely atypical, but I the, the mood feels like everybody's like, well, it's okay. Like we'll be very well connected. We'll know each other very well by the time we get up there, which I feel like is an advantage 
-hmm. versus like showing up and not knowing anybody. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think it'll be really good. Yeah. Excellent. And you guys have a lot of time, especially through you doing the podcast of learning more about the space and, um, and whatnot as well. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's been awesome. I've also talked to some people who were in Antarctica when Homeward Bound has been there and like had interactions with the different cohorts and they're like, man, the energy just was amazing. Like I wanted to be part of it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it awesome. sounded so cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And actually it's, it's really cool to know that, um, if you don't know that it, within the room at Camlar, there's actually a growing community of uh, Homeward Bound alumni. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's actually really neat to, to see them in these places of, uh, of policymaking and whatnot. So um, all over the world. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We, so I have one more question. We talked a little bit about Camlar, but I'm not totally confident. I understand all of it. I know it's like, I know they meet every year. I know that they're doing these things, but okay. I also know that there's the Antarctica treaty and I guess I'm wondering like which one came first. Yeah. <laughs> like, great question. How does that all interact together. Totally. So, I mean, Antarctica historically was a, uh, was sort of the last, uh, last continent that was undiscovered. Uh, and you know, there, there weren't indigenous people living there. Um, there's some evidence that they, uh, that people may have passed through historically, but no one had actually been sort of living there. It was just too extreme. And so, so typical, uh, colonial stories, you know, Western countries with their flags planting them and they actually divided up Antarctica like a pie, but some of the claims were, were competing, you know, Argentina, Chile, and the UK had these competing claims around the peninsula. Um, and, uh, and there were a bunch of other states that, that claimed areas and the U S and USSR reserved their right to claim the whole thing, of course. Um, and an amazing thing happened at the height of the cold war. Uh, there was real, fear that Antarctica was going to actually be used as a scene for nuclear war, you know, because it's a Southern hemisphere location. And for the USSR and US, they're like, sweet, Southern hemisphere spot. Um, and uh, there was just real fear. It was going to be turned into this, this uh, scene of international discord. And amazingly, instead of that, uh, we convened and signed a peace treaty. Like in the Antarctic treaty is one of the most amazing agreements I, that I know about, because it basically took all those competing sovereignty claims, threat of nuclear war, and, and, and suspended it all. Claims are sovereignty is suspended, military activities are prohibited, nuclear anything is prohibited uh, in Antarctica. And later agreements actually banned mining uh, and uh, set aside the continent as a reserve uh, for peace and science. So just one of the most remarkable agreements um, I think in the world that we have and shows what's, what's possible. Um, and I guess to that point, uh, something to know is that part of what, where that agreement came out of was that there was a lot of international science collaboration around Antarctica. And there was a specific, specific international geophysical year in 1957-58 at the height of the Cold War that actually set up a framework for sharing bases and resources and infrastructure. And that was used as the basis for this political agreement. So it was really like this, this science collaboration, which is why the treaty prioritizes science and why it's uh, Antarctica still very much like scientists are the main stakeholders. Um, but it didn't deal with the oceans or the, the, the sort of fish around Antarctica. And that was a later agreement um, that came into force in 1982 that set up Camelar. And that was really because there was just, uh, there was more and more interest in fishing the Southern Ocean already. Uh, there were some populations of fin fish around sub-Antarctic islands being decimated, uh, as well as near the peninsula being decimated. And a lot of the Antarctic fish just are not... Uh, resilient to heavy fishing. They just, the, their life history is such like the toothfish that they're, they're not going to um, withstand heavy fishing. And so unfortunately, before Camlar was in place, there was actually some overfishing that happened and krill fishing was happening rapidly. So Camlar came into place to at least regulate that. And in the same principles as the treaty, like prioritization of science, 
um, and uh, and and the oh God, the the Camelot Treaty is actually really beautiful and innovative. It, it demands an ecosystem approach. It demands that um, you can't uh, you can't fish unless you actually consider all the impacts on predators and prey, and you consider two to three generations out um, for for the um, species. So it really is a beautiful uh, convention and, and protected areas, closed areas uh, are actually part of that original convention. So that's why it's not, it's not uh, bringing something new to Camelar. It's actually something that they legally have within their, um, within their original treaty. So it is, um, it only has 26 member states right now. So it is, uh, those are the ones who are engaged in decision-making. Um, it's not a, a sort of global agreement in that way. It's not a United Nations thing. It's its own um, its own thing. So that's, that's how they work. Um, they do have new membership, uh, um, like new members do join who are interested in fishing or conservation or research down there. Um, but that's, that's how it works. So they all meet once a year down in Hobart, Tasmania, Australia, and, and uh, they meet over the course of two weeks. And, and they have a, a, they have multiple science groups that work throughout the year to actually inform the process. That's what I mean, they, they are uh, making decisions based on science with all these working groups. And so it really is a, um, it really is a good model uh, for management when it works. <laughs> when it works well, I think. I think the science process is a lot, um, a lot more streamlined. And then there's the sort of, uh, sort of diplomatic policy process that um, that things can sometimes get stuck in. Yeah, that explains it really well. So I have a much better understanding now. Thank you. No worries. Uh, yeah, the Antarctica Treaty is like an astounding piece of, of work. Like, I, I beautiful. It's amazing to me that it exists and I'm glad that it does. It's, it is amazing. And it's actually the first post-World War II arms limitation agreement. Mm -hmm. And that's a really originally what it was. And that's where I, I agree. I'm like, it's, it's, those are its roots, but it's so much more now. It's such an environmental agreement now. And, um, and it really does set aside this like huge place as a, as a global commons. Mining is banned and definitely um, under this, under related agreements. And so it, it truly is like a place that shows, I think humanity at its best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That's a good way to describe that. Well, that's amazing. And I am excited to go. <laughs> yeah, totally, Rachel. It's, it's such a pleasure to chat with you about this stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this because I know that there's a lot happening in the world and you know, classes are on and all of that. And so no thank you for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to go to Antarctica in my head, you know. Yeah, even, even <laughs> if it's only in our heads right now. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been so nice to talk to you. No, Rachel, it's, it's a total pleasure. It really is. Hey, y'all, it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy. Enjoy.